Hello and welcome to another episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr, where we talk with inspiring record labels about what it's like to run and start and be successful or have hardships as a record label. Today on the show, I'm very excited to have Alec from Brassland Records. You can check out more about Brassland Records by going to Brassland, that's B-R-A-S-S-L-A-N-D dot org. They are celebrating 20 years in the music industry. In fact, they got started releasing the uh, early national records, the first few records by the band The National. In fact, the label was started by Alec, who I'm speaking with, as well as um, the two brothers from The National. And so it's an incredible history in this label. And of course, those guys have gone on to do some really incredible things. And we talk about what that's like having an artist move on to another label uh, later in their career. Um, but this label is also known for great artists like Dove Man, who I'm, who I'm a big fan of, and Barty Strange, who everybody's a big fan of right now. So um, very exciting episode, uh, and I really hope that you enjoy this interview. If you listen to our show in, in real time, and by that I mean um, this episode is coming out in the summer, and, and so if you stick up to date with the, the, the show, I, I feel this, you know, something coming this fall, where this fall is a, a time for people to hopefully get back on track and, and start to do things with a little bit more normalcy if possible. Um, and what I want to do with other record labels is I want to continue to, listen, I boiled uh, the purpose of other record labels down to educating, equipping, and encouraging. And that's the whole goal of these interviews and of the entire platform and our website, otherrecordlabels.com. And under the uh, educating and equipping uh, banner, we have our free resources that you can download as well as our, our advanced courses that you can take. And so if you feel that groundswell coming this fall where you know hopefully things are getting back to normal we, we start to rebuild uh, our record labels or even launch a brand new record label um, go to otherrecordlabels.com to check out some of the resources there that will hopefully uh, equip you and educate you on on getting better at running a record label and the third tent pole uh, is is encouraging and that's what I hope you get from these interviews and these episodes is encouragement as we can commiserate and relate uh, to some of the, the struggles that even more successful labels have, uh, as well as be inspired um, by the things that they do well. Okay, so let's let's dive in. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. I found some, some interesting things online. Um, nothing like... Uh, it's not like a, a gotcha moment coming up or anything, but I'm just no, no, no. I mean, I was you did very some research, excited. which is awesome. <laughs> so yeah, we're kind of like a weird like for the number of artists that have done pretty darn well, whether it be the national, which yeah. is like you know beyond what anyone ever expects about anything, or just like the bands that have had these very large niche followings, yeah. or, or big cultural moments. I'm, I feel like we're a pretty low profile label, but. I've, there's a breadcrumb trail, and I've been a little bit more self-conscious about leaving leaving one of yeah. late. So I'm excited that you found things because probably intentional. Well, you know? yeah, that's found actually something. what I like about your lab about your website too. Is that your website? Like, I'm a fan of like minimal information, but I also sometimes like when a website 
like especially for these purposes of research, but your website just was like a place that you could camp out for an hour and listen to music or read articles or like do a deep dive on the history or on you. So for this purposes, it was great. And and there's there's oftentimes I'm going to a website and I actually want to be presented with as much information as possible. And I like that about your website. Well, I think it's partially a nature of the fact that my background is in writing and, and I'm like... <laughs> yeah somewhat of a scholarly dude, or at least, you know, like it's reading and writing are as much a part of me and to a certain extent of the label as, as music. And in some ways it's just leaving an archive. Yeah. I um, think that's great. At this point you either, you either make, are making a fashion statement with your website or being like purposefully an enigmatic yeah. or you're creating a resource. And I, I wanted to create a resource very inspired by things like discord records. If you've ever followed that sure. label, the sort of DC post-punk thing but yeah yeah no i i totally agree and i think you're right excuse me i think there are like you can be on either end of the spectrum i think it might be a problem to be in the middle where you try to keep things minimal but then you throw in a three paragraphs where it shouldn't be so i kind of like uh picking a side this yeah and a lot of the labels about try we try to be about a community so i think drawing those connections um is important and it's hard to do that, especially in this age with no liner notes. Like you kind of oh, need true, true, true. Prose. Yeah, you need your own prose to kind of explain <laughs> how everything ties together. But yeah, okay. So twenty years this year is that right? Yeah, that's pretty great. Yeah, does it ridiculous. does it feel like twenty years? Like, um, it feels like a long time. Twenty years blows my mind. Yeah, like it's it's a little confusing. Um. I, you know, I think it's also worth understanding, like, you know, the National didn't start taking off until, like, 2006, 7, 8, and the label wasn't really something that I would call full-time for me until, like, 2010, mm. 11. So there are sort of, like, half-lives to be drawn, yeah, from the oh, entire sure. 20 years. It's not like I've been doing the same thing. Yeah. Oh, I get time, that. But. Yeah, I get that. You know, it's funny, like, when you think of 20 years, I, I because I was a teenager during 9-11, I always think that it wasn't that long ago. But then I see pictures of, like, mm-hmm. what people wore back then. And I'm like, oh, that was a long time ago. <laughs> it's crazy. I was actually wondering, I, I mean, we don't have to talk about how, how old you are, but it sounds like you're a little younger than I am. Because yeah, 9-11 I'm, was very much... Yeah, I'm, thir- so, I'm 38. Okay, yeah, so a couple of years, a bunch of years younger than me, but yeah, we put out our first records, um, or we like, I always make our starting point vague, because I'm like, maybe we got the records back in March 2001, uh, yeah, maybe yeah. we got them all back by July, but uh, in a lot of ways, how I center things is the National did a tour in like October 2001, um, so 9-11 oh, man. psychologically was a really big moment for us. So in that way, 20 years is very conceivable because of that major event that happened sort of between the time CDs arrived at my house or the house that I've shared with Bryce Desner and that first tour. Yeah. It's amazing at how, no matter how long you've been around, you always think of yourself as young or just starting out. I don't know if that changes as years go on, but I still feel like the just starting out or, or maybe it's imposter syndrome, but just, you know, just figuring this out is still fresh in my mind. Yeah, you never feel as old as you are, but I, I definitely I feel like I've felt middle aged for a long time, and I'm not <laughs> against that. You know, I think we've never been like we've never been the youth culture 
label, right. you know, like right. maybe accidentally at moments we've had moments, but it's, it's definitely not the, yeah. Okay. So tell me about the origins of this back in college with Aaron and Bryce. Um, well, the, the, yeah, the origins didn't start in college, but I guess I met them in college. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Uh, Bryce and I went to school together and, um, him and his brother, um, and actually uh, Brian Devendorf, the drummer for the National right. War, in a band called Project Nim, um, that I was, you know, very much not from a scene that I was a fan of. And this was like an era before I cared about even classic rock. And by classic rock, I mean like Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, <laughs> sure. Neil Young, yeah. like level things. Like yeah. I was like, what is that crap? I'm all about Fugazi and like whatever Fugazi <laughs> is putting out. Like strange, esoteric, post-punk Um and Project Nim was kind of almost like a post Ten Thousand Maniacs, you know, connected to like I think Dave Matthews' band was sort of like the right. aspiration right. Um, back then. So, you know, we were very much in aesthetic different places, but but personally, I think we really liked each other's vibe. Like the hang was good, um, and you know, so we became pretty fast friends, and we founded the label, and we all found ourselves in New York you know, around 1999, 2000, 2001, Aaron, Bryce, and I all worked for a company called Funny Garbage, okay. um, which was sort of a developer of um, kiosks for museums, like video kiosks and online experiences mm-hmm. and websites. Um, and Bryce and Aaron were the twin personal assistants to the kind of business director and the creative <laughs> director oh, of weird. the company. Um, although Aaron really had a whole business development, like he was Everything Aaron does, he does very seriously and intentionally. And I think he was the most for real employee there. I was like mm. a project manager. Um, by that time, Bryce had gone to uh, the Yale School of Music um, and sort of become like this classically trained musician. So I think he was really expanding past his, um, you know, this sort of jam band roots, roots rock kind of background. And Aaron... Um, you know, as it turned out, I think had accidentally ended up writing songs in that context. And he sort of was busy more making like lo-fi demos. And I think it became apparent that like, actually, you know, where some of the energy of their creativity was, was around adjacent to what at the time would have been called Mm post-rock, you know, sort of Tortoise, Godspeed You, Black Emperor, older bands like Penguin Cafe Orchestra, kind of whatever Brian Eno does. Mm -hmm. Um, And Aaron, you know, I guess he wasn't making pavement songs, but but I think it was more connected to like Silver Jews. At 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 the origins of the National, the bands I think that were really crucial to us um, that everyone could agree on were like the Sea and Cake, Silver Jews, um, very obscure. Sure. You know, now, um, although, you know, iconic to some, but obscure in like sort of a larger cultural history of the universe kind of sense. Yeah. Those were the bands that everyone could kind of agree on. And at that point, it was like, oh, we all kind of have some common ground here. Um, so when Aaron had the first national record before Bryce even joined the band and Bryce had finished his first record with Clogs, which was with four uh, classmates from the Yale School of Music, and it's kind of a improvised classical music, is, mm-hmm. is I think the, the catchphrase that we would use to describe it. Um, I was the person that listened to both and was like, hey, these could actually exist in the same universe, um, the same subcultural universe. I had kind of had a background, like even as early as high school, I had a cassette label 
Uh, oh, that was really? called Brassland. Um, and it done a bunch of zines and things like that. So it was kind of like a relaunch of Brassland, but actually with an identity um, and re- and with some higher fi sort of proper recordings rather than these like lo-fi cassette things, which I you know I, I take very seriously still. But sure. um, that that good things can be made in the cassette format. But where were people like, recording? Definitely, the, yeah. Where were people recording Sorry, at this time? Where where were where were the guys recording in in the early two thousands? Was it at college or or? I'm trying to remember. Well, there there was this guy Nick Lloyd who's still around and still connected to everyone. Like you know, I, I think I saw he got a credit on the Big Red Machine record. Okay. I don't know if he recorded both the national debut and Clogs debut, but he was important. And it was definitely like the Pro Tools era had begun. Yeah. So it's not like those were not self-recorded records, but there might have been elements of like the national that were self-recorded. Right. Um, right, right, right. The Clogs was more going into a proper studio. I'd literally have to go and look up like where that first one was recorded. I know that I think by the third record they were making records with Nick Lloyd. Um, at a at a place called Firehouse Thirteen in New Haven, Connecticut. Okay. Um, um, so yeah, it was like not hi-fi studio recording, but it was kind of cobbled together with friends. We just happened to have some friends that had some decent resources, and in some ways, we're trying to sort of test and uh, not the limits of their studio. We weren't making prog rock records, but they were trying to like get their studios on their feet. Um, so, so yeah, that's what how those was the were made. Uh, so what inspired you to start a label? Because it's one thing, it's very common to be musicians, to form bands, to form lots of bands. But to say, especially back then, before the internet was what it is and, and manufacturing and home recording is what it is, it, it would, it'd be a much uh, harder process back then to start a label. So what inspired that? I mean, I think... You know, I think Aaron and Bryce had, again, like the story of the Dave Matthews band pressing up their CD, own CD and selling tens of thousands of copies. Because that very much, like, no one thinks of the Dave Matthews band as, like, a self-resourced group. But, like, Corin Capshaw, who was their manager, um, ended up, you know, he's become a real music industry powerhouse. I think he's a partner in ATO Records. He's a partner in Red Light Management. So like they sort of had that inkling, although we didn't really have investors or anything like that. So, you know, we weren't thinking on that scale. And I think no one thought that the music was as accessible as that. But then I came from a background where I was extremely inspired by Discord Records, Touch and Go, Thrill Jockey, this mm-hmm. whole Chicago thing that was happening at the time. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of has dissolved. And I think the history has been lost since um, Touch and Go collapsed in 2000 nine while we were a client of theirs but um you know at the time there was this chicago kind of thing going on where like that's you know back when arcade fire kind of put out their first records on merge that was distributed by touch and go so i kind of saw a possible on-ramp like i could identify like ooh, if we could get this distributor interested in us um or these publicists or these people connected this scene there was actually a bunch of booking agencies there there was um it was uh, this company called Billions, which at the time booked like everyone from oh, like, yeah. Yeah, Caveman to Nick Cave. Like they're not they're not erased now, but they definitely have, have reduced in scale. But that was the scene. That was like the aspiration, I guess. And I had done cassettes before, and had done some records, and distributed some things. So it wasn't completely bizarre to me. Sure, the idea of making your own stuff. And my zine was like distributed in Tower Records and things like that. So like I can't say we were good at things. Um, sure. What was the investment like? We had like? models. 
What did it cost to do like uh, 500 CDs or something? Bryce, Aaron, and I, I feel like the price wasn't much different than it is today. Like, you know, it was between a mm. dollar and three dollars a unit. Oh, sure. You know, probably on the, probably we were spending like, you know, two or three dollars a unit rather than one or two dollars a unit because we didn't know what we were yeah, doing. Yeah. Or, you know, we were just kind of coming in off the street. But um, the investment was Bryce, Aaron, and I put $5,000 each in a bank account. And oh, course, wow. That's great. You know, we weren't, we weren't, we weren't paying for all the um, the studio recording. I don't even know. You know, like it's unclear to me if they were even really paying much for the studio recording of right. those first records. By the second record of the national, like there was some real investment being made on on master production. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that five thousand dollars lasted us a fairly long time. Uh, like we, there's never been a big infusion of cash. You know what? Since then, that didn't come from sales, which is like. That's I really look good. Back and it still seems bizarre. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. One of the things I love about um, people investing their own money, and especially two individuals investing 5000 is it really is putting your money where your mouth is. And I think so many people create this label, and all it takes is an Instagram account, a Bandcamp page, and, and a, a, a free logo that you sketch up yourself or you get someone to, on Fiverr to make. And, and I feel like that... Uh, create that's a great that's great it, it breaks down these barriers but it 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 takes away a lot of the accountability that you would have had back then when you had five thousand dollars of your money and then five thousand of your friends money uh, on the line I think that's a that's a really good thing to do it's a brave thing to do well I definitely think yeah I mean you know in the era of you know coronavirus where people are you know, Small restaurants are getting, at least in the states, are getting five, five, ten, hundreds of thousands of dollars, like from the government to like, you know, like as sort of stimulus money. Yeah. Five thousand dollars doesn't seem a lot. I don't even know if it seemed a lot to us then. I think it, but it did give us some kind of baseline. And I do think anything you can do, you know, I guess one of the important things for your listeners is there's like a certain pedagogical element, and I do think like having some skin in the game and having some stakes and having some structure, it does help, you know, as much as artists hate structure on many levels, or at least back in the day they did. I think artists are probably more into it um, than they used to be. I think DIY sort of DIY uh, creativity and responsibility is more of a thing Mm. than it used to be. Um, I think it used to be that you were looking for a savior Generally, if you were an artist, you're like, who's going to touch me? Who's going to discover me? Who's going to invest in me? And I think pretty much anyone, like, I don't think you can get anywhere in the music industry now if you don't first invest a little bit in yourself. Yeah. Um, And I'd say, I mean, I think about the latest artists we work with, you know, the biggest breakout we've had of late, this artist, Bartiz Strange. Oh, yeah. Um, And um, he very much invested in himself. It became, it was very clear when I walked in the door with him, like, oh, this guy has photos. Oh, this guy's thought of himself. Oh, this guy has a finished record. And there's a cover for the record. Like, yeah, so I think yeah, that is important. Deal. And I think there's more of that going on than there used to be. When did the, the the part of the story I'm very curious about is when did the National move on from the label? And what was that decision like? Was that always, had that always been a goal or a plan? Well, I think, um, I think, First of all, the, the actual year, I think it was like by 2006 or okay. something like that. It might have been seven. It might have been eight. I think Boxer was in 2008. So that was their second record on yeah. Beggars. Um, 
I think our last record, we did the Cherry Tree EP in 2004. So that was like three, four years after they, after we had started. Um, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't without like, oh, bummer, but it was also like obvious right. at the same time, if that makes sense. Like, okay. I do think one thing that was part of the culture of indie at the time was like this sense of being betrayed and like, or going to a major label and <laughs> yeah. you're, you're ripping off your, your small indie label. And I don't think I've ever intuitively felt that way. I really think of us as having a role in an ecosystem. And for certain artists, our ecosystem can support their whole career. You know, I think uh, I've worked with this band, Buchan Gase, for over 10 years now. And they're like a kind of left of center, pretty esoteric, but but catchy enough that they've gotten sort of a, a fairly rabid following band. And like... Or clogs, you know, Bryce's classical group. Like, we'll, we're now going in over twenty years. Wow, having represented their ecosystem, and for certain of our artists, it's like this is this is the soil that's getting you started. Um, and you know, I, I think a five-person band of dudes trying to make like sort of large populist live shows like it was pretty obvious we couldn't we couldn't keep them forever mm. you know um and that's okay yeah um i mean i helped them find their first manager like don barger who you know looked after them for somewhere between 10 15 years or so mm. um was a publicist at the time who i was sort of interacting with as a writer um, and it was, you know, it was clear, like she, at the time she was representing the Walkman, maybe she had started working with the Decemberists, like right. she had a thing going and it was like, this is the next step yeah. for this band. Um, yeah. I'm always curious about labels who, you know, quote unquote, graduate artists. I, I think, I mean, for me, it was always kind of a dream. Like when I started a label, I knew that I wouldn't be able to, uh, necessarily get CDs into mall record stores which were a thing at the time and or you know or to do whatever payola was necessary and so i always kind of dreamed about that i, I would have i i would think of it as a as a big accomplishment yeah i mean you know it's happened to us a couple times like um i mean it, the funny thing is like every time an artist has graduated i've often had some kind of fingerprint on their graduation like mm. uh, you know this band uh this is a kit uh, this British yeah. band who we've done a number of records with, they're on Rough Trade. And like literally my friend was the label manager for the U.S. Uh, Rough Trade at the time that we were putting out their records. And I'm the one who got Jeff Travis out to his first This Is The Kid show. Um, oh, and he cool. ended up signing them. So, and, you know, but the other thing is like, I also think how it works these days, like, you know, I still publish This Is The Kid's entire back catalog. I yeah. still have This Is The Kid's biggest song you know, the national, the income that those old early records generate for Brassland, you know, is still a lot of ways the engine that keeps us going. And I'm hoping now with Barty Strange, like, yep. you know, the, he's probably going to be signing to a much bigger label very soon. And, mm. you know, I'm definitely catalog building. I'm world building. I am community building. So yeah. community building, you know, like, Barack Obama started as like a community organizer and I don't think anyone in their right mind would say, well, you know what? You should stay with the local Chicago nonprofit that you were like <laughs> the executive director for or the, you know, like it just is like an outdated concept. I think sure. the idea that, 
you should be holding on to things beyond when it makes sense. Uh, and I, I think I don't you get know, on the other side, like I don't think we've wanted to grow Brassland itself. Like I don't want to have 20 staff members or a hundred staff yeah, members. Right, so, right. you know, something has to give. Yeah. I don't get the American uh, Barack Obama reference. Did he go on to, to bigger things or? Yeah. Yeah. He got, <laughs> he had some other, other jobs. Started a company. Um, yeah, startup. Sometimes, sometimes that sometimes that role doesn't work out that well. Sometimes you do wish that the person <laughs> that becomes president didn't become president and stayed in their former line of work. But you know, I, you know what? It's I want like it must be pretty surreal seeing Aaron win a Grammy for album of the year. Like, did you guys manifest that back in your dorm room that that would happen in in twenty years? Yeah, no. I mean, the last year has been. Uh, deeply bizarre on so many fronts. And I think, you know, I, it's like, I feel like I could just be talking about the ele- like common experience of like the election and coronavirus and yeah. it would make sense to people. But then for me, it was like watching the whole Taylor Swift thing unfold and then also watching like, you know, again, like I don't know if any of your listeners will know who Bartiz Strange is yet. In a couple of years, oh, I maybe think they so. will. Oh, sure. It depends. It's, I guess probably yeah. your, your pitchfork readers. So like that sort of coronation kind of helps but like watching this artist without being able to tour who's a great live artist yes. um be able to like essentially become like the DIY success story of the year oh, throughout absolutely. this year has also yeah. been bizarre and yeah. like so my last year like we put out his record and I think I can't remember if it was March 12th or March 13th his de- his debut EP which was a bunch of national covers right yeah March 12th or March 13th which is like the start one, of the pandemic one day we were at WNYC <laughs> Literally, start of the pandemic. Yeah. Like so, like one day he was doing a live session at WNYC. By the time we left out, I walked out. WNYC was like, "Yep, this is the last live session for at least a month." <laughs> that night, we or the next night, I saw him play a show at this uh, venue in Bushwick called the Sultan Room. And as I was literally going home that night, looking through my Instagram stream, I'm like, "Oh wow, every venue in New York is closed for the foreseeable future." Yeah, and I should also credit uh, Fusilier, or another artist of ours played that same gig. So like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's been a bizarre and exciting year. And yeah, I, I can talk more about the Aaron winning a Grammy thing. Um, <laughs> sure. If you want, it's, it's sort of self-explanatory. I mean, everyone no, knows about it, but it's been I wanna, really cool watching. Yeah. I want to talk about the label. I want to focus on the label, yeah. but w- was there a worry that the success of the national, uh, and this is before the, the Taylor Swift stuff. Um, but, but was there a worry that the success of the national would dwarf, Brassland, in the sense that people might dismiss the label because it was part of the early days. Do you think about that at all? I think. I mean, it's funny. Like, it's it. They, oh, a to answer your question, it has dwarfed the label. Like, that's very clear, and that's okay. fine. You yeah. know, yeah. Um, like in terms of cultural impact, just as I think, probably for you know Aaron and and some of his subsequent projects, like sure. Taylor Swift is always going to dwarf his projects, but like at the same time, it's also made all of his projects bigger than they ever would have been because he got to work with Taylor Swift, even if he'll never be as big as Taylor Swift. And I think that's okay. Um, I think, yeah, like you sort of find your level. It's kind of being okay with it and not sort of bitter about it. Like it's not, that's not what I'm trying to do, you know? Yeah, um, right, right. 
there was some other, there was a subsection of your question that I feel like I'm not addressing. Well, but, let me, um, let me ask you another question. And I've asked this question to labels like Jag and Asthmatic, Kitty and, and, and Brushfire. Like, how do you prevent or how do you cope with an artist from overshadowing your other artists on your roster? I mean, what, what is the mindset? I mean, you've got to be empathetic to some of the other people on your roster who may want to get on the Nationals label, but at the same time, they don't want to be overshadowed by, by, by those, uh, flagship artists? Well, I mean, I think one thing that helps is I'm not looking for another The National. I mean, that's happened a bunch of times. I've mm. actually seen, like, there's people that, there are low-voiced crooners who have come to us over the years and wanted us to do their records. And I'm kind of <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah, the fact that I did all of these, you know, did help start this band, you know, fronted by a low-voiced crooner, like, means that I probably don't a hundred percent. Yeah, it's the worst. Me of it too much. It's like X, <laughs> it's so X, weird. Eh? I, I've had a, a a friend of mine worked for Excel for a decade, um, and I've I read like the book by uh, what's his name, um, Richard. Uh, I'm not remembering the name of the founder of Excel right now, but great book um, that he put about the history of the label. And, mm. they, and you know, the last thing they want is another Adele. Like right. you have to be that kind of label, and you have to have that kind of mindset. Yeah, I can't say. We've done it as successfully as Jag Jaguar. I mean, I think they have such a rich, thick roster beyond Bon Iver. Mm -hmm. Like, Bon Iver might always be the hugest thing, but I don't think they have been overshadowed. I think, you know, in, to a certain extent, what I do exists in the shadow of the national, but like in a very diverse, non-imitative kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that's maybe the way we've done it. The artists that... Um that think to send like to copy Bonavera and then to send um, a demo to Jag or I, I talked about this with Mike Sniper from Captured Tracks. How right after Mac DeMarco, he got like hundreds of demos that sounded exactly like Mac DeMarco, and I just think like what is going through their mind? Like you're absolutely right. The label is like evolving and should never. I mean, I, I can't think of any label who's well. There might be some examples who's just put out carbon copies of successful artists or their own successful artists. That's so funny to me. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I feel like artists are frankly, because of the kind of work that people like yourself are doing, like more and more people are knowledgeable about how to do things. But I think a lot of artists literally like the traditional thing is the artist's thought process ends at making the music. And then they're just like looking for someone to connect with. So they yeah. just, it's, it, I don't think they're doing it out of an area of thought. I think they're doing it out of a, out of a, a feeling of affinity. And like, I, I really want to stray from using the word desperation because it's such a cliche, mm -hmm. but like, I don't think there's a lot of thought that goes into it when people try to sign to a label that That's whose dominant artist yeah. sounds exactly like them. I, I think it's just like, it's flailing around. I mean, yeah, it's interesting what you're doing. You know, one of the inspirations for what I do, it kind of started with, does anyone remember the label Simple Machines? I don't think anyone really talks about them anymore. They were one no. of these like DC area labels. Like there was Teen Beat, Discord. Um, they put out a guide like in the late 90s, this paper guide to like how to press up a record. Um, it'd be I think someone like you would love to That's find cool. something like yeah. this. And it'll I'll, seem I'll very primitive it. at this point. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, again, when you had to literally, like, find United Record Pressing in a phone book a phone and write to them before <laughs> yeah. they had a website. Yeah. Um, 
And so back then there was out of this in the zine era, there was a bit of a like how to make your own culture out of Riot Girl, things like that. But I feel like, yeah, there's been a a gap. And it's it's interesting to see a, a thing like yours trying to create that energy mm. again. But I, I think, you know, in the early 2000s through the 2010s, I don't think there was a lot of that energy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I thought it was interesting. I, I've kind of been, in my mind, been going back to what you're talking about, you know, with, with Barty Strange coming into the label with um, having his act together. And, and I, I find it so exciting when an artist comes in and they want to work just as hard as you. I feel like success is is far more inevitable if if there if you have two people who are 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 pedal to the metal. What does the ideal artist look like for you? Maybe asking from an AR uh standpoint, not necessarily creative, although it could be creative, but what does an ideal artist look like for you to work with? Um, I, mean, I think the national are it. Okay. Strange is it. I don't think <laughs> this is the kit and Buchan Gase are to a certain extent um, it, but in very different ways. Like I think sort of intense self-sufficiency is very helpful. You know, when you realize that a band is able to tour without a tour manager and show up on time right. and deal with their agent and route the tour and do it in a sensible way and communicate to you when it's happening and do all those things. That's a great sign. Mm. Um, but you know, we're, I'm not a label that would sign an artist just because they fit my ideal. It really is all about the music and connecting to that. Um, you know, I put out artists where I'm like, these people are great songwriters. This is a great recording. I don't know if this artist is ever going to be able to figure out how to play a New York show. But, you know, I think the song's going to stand on its own. I'm going to be able to get it in a TV show. I'm going to be able to make it, you know, at least get a start on streaming. Um, But, um, yeah, I'd say an intense self-sufficiency. Actually, just to be fair, like the sort of newest artist where we put a lot of energy into, Hannah Georges, Mm -hmm. who's, you know, more of an established established figure up in Canada that hasn't really gotten as much of a foothold outside of Canada. Um, right, right. She, I can tell is like, you know, she can answer all the questions. She can make all the artwork. She can, you know, a certain professionalism. Yeah, totally. In terms of how they self present and how they show up, um, is super helpful. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, just this morning, I was sitting on the porch, um, and I, w- I was listening to that Dove Man record again this morning. That's just such a fantastic record, uh, The Conformist. And it's um, also just exciting, too, about the work that he's done on other people's records, too. I always love seeing his name come up. I, actually, yeah, I mean, I'm very curious how you discovered him, because that's not one of our... He's, I think, becoming a little bit more of a known quantity, but even his social media, like, he's sort of intentionally... Yeah, obscure. He he'd be a, and he'd be a great example, frankly, of the counter. Like him as a person is not an ideal artist. Like he doesn't really like to leave New York City. I mean, like that's <laughs> an important thing sure. to know about him. Like he's canceled tours opening for like fairly significant artists. Wow, because he like didn't feel like leaving town that week. Wow, uh, who was um, he had a tour uh, up the East Coast with Patrick Watson. That, oh, I think wow. he ended up dropping off half the shows. Oh man! Um, like right after we had, or like within a year of putting out a record of his, but he's so creative and, and so sort of, uh, I was going to use a really pretentious word, 
Um, there's a cornucopia of music. Maybe that's pretentious, but it's less pretentious than the word I had in mind. Like, you know, so like I wanted to work with him because he's a great musician and a great creative energy, not because he was going to be a great touring sort of super functional, like on social media, promoting uh, the things he does. I, I love that. Um, I, I didn't, how did you find him? Okay. Well, I, 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 I want to know. Sure. Sure. Record. Well, I, I can only give credit to my friend, Mike, who I will now have to tell to listen to this episode. I'm sure he doesn't listen, but um, my friend, Mike, he, he will occasionally text me with something and a hundred percent of the time I've never heard of what he is very obscure, what he sends me. And I, I wonder if he has this, he, he wouldn't have this record on vinyl. It's not on vinyl, right? He, he maybe has it, it on might CD be soon. or something. Okay, it might that's be great soon. news. That's actually one that's of, great news. that's the thing I'm looking most forward to over the next year or two is, is trying to get a bunch of the back catalog yes. onto vinyl yes. for the first well, time. Yes, CD I'll, download. I'll pre-order one yeah. for sure. Um, anyway, yeah, Mike just said, you, you have to listen to this Dubman record. You'll love it. And so I just kind of obeyed him and I played it and I, and I did love it. So that was really, I didn't discover it myself and I don't know how he did. I'll ask him and I'll, I'll, I'll message you, but, um, he's always looking for some weird stuff and, um, and usually it's so obscure and, um, I, I've never heard of it, what he sends me and I either hate it or it becomes like in my top 20 albums of all time. So I trust him. Do you think it was, was it, was it, subs, was it during its like release window or was uh, it? Um... You know, no, I could tell you it was like uh, 2013, 2014 time. Yeah. Does that sound right? A couple right? years after, but yeah. not, yeah, 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 a couple years later, but not, uh, not far after release. Yeah. It's not like a decade later. It's not like you got hurt it two years ago. No, or no, like no, that, no, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'll ask him how he came across it. He always has like mysterious ways of coming across things. Um, okay, so I dug up this article you wrote called 19 Things I Tell People Who Want to Start a Record Label. I love it. It was so good. Can we go through it a little bit? Yeah, totally. Just and, a couple and of Honestly, them. if anyone was going to ask for advice on my advice for starting a record label, that would be the first thing I'd, I'd show them. Oh, I love I think it. We're gonna run into a, we're going to run into a stumbling block on the first thing because I think... I just listened to a short a short episode of yours. Uh, should I start a record label? And your definitive answer is yes. And my <laughs> definitive answer is kind of like the opposite. But I, you know, yes. But anyway, yeah. Okay. Go for it. So number one is if you tell someone how hard it is, if you uh, Alec tell someone how hard it is to start a record label, and they ignore you and go for it anyway, then maybe they have a shot. I do. I really do love that. I agree with you. I, I think uh, persistence is such an underrated skill. Everyone is looking for the secret to playlists or SEO, but to me, it's just perseverance and, and, and persistence. Can you elaborate a bit? Yeah. I mean, I think what I'm trying to get across from that is not so much a no as like, it's hard and it's not sensible, like <laughs> by any normal metric to start a record label. It makes a little more sense now, now that sort of sometimes it's a function of an artist wanting to control their own rights. Yeah. Um, and, and frankly, the fact that like literally no one will give you a start these That's days right. yeah. other than other than starting for yourself um but yeah it it was to kind of get across the fact that like a it's going to require persistence because it's not easy i mean i think that and it doesn't get easier and that's just the deal you know like art is hard i think is one way to put it i think that was the lyric of a a sort of late era emo band called cursive um although late era emo they're always emos I think we're on emo 5.0 at this point, but um, fourth wave. Art is hard, and I think that's worth 
understanding. Um, have you said you're a reader at the beginning? Have you read the book The Black Swan by any chance? Uh, Nicholas. Yes. Nassim. Nassim. Saying, butchering his name. Yes, but it's been a while. Tell it, me. Okay. Tell me what. Uh, okay, so he was talking about how um, I think they they did a study of businesses, and it was something like. 80 to 90% of all businesses fail and and shut down. And then when they ask like new entrepreneurs, will you be in the top 10% or and then it was something like 80 or 90% saw themselves in the top 10%. But the reality even yeah. when presented yeah. with the the fact that 90% of businesses will fail, 90% of people did not see them in that 90%. <laughs> Well, I think it's funny. I mean, I think what my first point is trying to get across is the sort of grit that it takes. You know, that's the that's the buzzword sure. that people are using, grit. But like, then there's also like the work ethic, and definitely a lot of people that found things and start things have more of a self confidence, have more self confidence than they have a work ethic. So, like, it's been a lot of hard work for 20 years, and it's consistently hard work. And I don't, I don't think that first point really gets at it. But I mm. think the people that are in the 80% but consider themselves in the 10%. I mean, whatever, there's also luck. Um, but I think they might lack somewhat of a work ethic yeah. and have the confidence to do things. But, th- you know, there's also a huge amounts of luck. If anyone had told me 20 years ago that the National would be where they are today, if anyone had told any member of the National that, like, they yeah. would have thought you were crazy. Like, that wasn't... Silver Jews were the aspiration more than pavement was, right. I would say. And, and the fact that they're bigger than either of those artists now is... Uh, Crazy. Yeah, uh, to- totally, so. totally. Number two is, and this is my core ethos when I started my label, but be against perfectionism. Can you explain this one? Um, I think it's just do it is kind of like yeah. the, <laughs> just like get off your ass, yeah. get something out there. Don't, don't, don't drive yourself too crazy. I mean, like, look, to be successful, you're going to need a certain amount of intensity and devotion to craft and devotion to product. But like, don't go too far down. Don't get lost in your navel, I think, <laughs> about level of quality or perfectionism or like it's a little bit better. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Although I do think the other thing I mentioned, I think it's the 10th anniversary of um, somebody I used to know. I, I just have, I have a browser tab open with StereoGum, which is reminding me of that. And oh, I know okay. that guy a little bit. Okay. Um, uh, Wally. Yeah. And... Uh, He's definitely a perfectionist. So he's like a counterexample. He literally made like the perfect song um, and hasn't done it, hasn't released anything <laughs> since then out of a sense of perfectionism. So I, I think any of these rules I'm giving, right. they're not so much rules as they're conversation points. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, and I, I think I still, I still strive to make great things and I'll, I'll make thousands of tweaks to mixes. And, and, and uh, I, I do think it's important to rewrite lyrics over and over and over again. But, um, it is very important to release things. I think it's important to be prolific. I think it's important to ship products, as Steve Jobs said. And I, I just, uh, I think too many people are are precious. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, let's hop over to number four. This one I disagree with, but I want you to explain it to me. Consume more than you produce. I kind of try to do the opposite, especially when I find myself infinitely scrolling on social media. I catch myself and I go off and, and force myself to write something or to, or to make something. What, what are your thoughts on consume more than you produce? Yeah, it's possible it was too broad. I mean, it's also, A, it is for 
I think that is speaking from the perspective of a label okay. owner, you okay. know, like, and, and a label putting things out. Like, I think if you put out six records a year, you should be listening to a hundred records okay. a year. It comes more right. from that perspective. Yeah. Whereas okay. like, I think some of what, some of the, the uh, community you're addressing are sort of artists that are doing their own labels. But yeah, and it, I definitely, yes, the infinite scroll is. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. It's like, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, okay. I yeah. Books, there's albums. It's actually something I'm trying to get better at. Um, cause I've become definitely like a playlist person. They're usually my own playlists or, or, you know, playlists by other creators and producers, not like whatever Spotify is spoon feeding to me about right. like, this is indie rock today. But I think, um, yeah, when I'm talking about consumption, it's more focused yeah. consumption and it is more like, yeah, it's not consuming the endless scroll or the, the scattered playlist. It's like going into different worlds. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you're you're absolutely right, and and I think um, there are there are different applications and there are different audiences for this. And sometimes, if I'm listening to too many business podcasts or reading different perspectives or going to social media and viewing these different things, then I just start to doubt myself, and and the, the imposter syndrome overtakes me and everything. And and I find I feel far more motivated when I'm just creating and making things. But I get exactly what you're saying, uh, just listening and, and not speaking and, and being quiet. I remember visiting the National in the studio during, um, I don't remember what, it was a very confusing time, the mid-2000s, but it was <laughs> somewhere between Cherry Tree and Boxer. Sure. Um, you know, visiting them in the studio while they were making a record with Peter Cadis, um, who's been involved in most of their records mm -hmm. since the mid 2000s and i think i made a cdr for them of like this awesome song from the aas and tv on the radio and like all these like things that were buzzing and knocking around brooklyn yeah at the time and i remember aaron you know this is a paraphrase but saying something to me like yeah like when we're in here we actually can't be thinking about our peers we can't be thinking about oh. interpol we can't be thinking about and you know i think they were thinking of a lot of those artists that were at the time doing much better than them. They were thinking of them in aspirational terms, but they, yeah. they did not want to get lost in those musical worlds. That's a great um, point. While they were literally in the studio. So I think what you you said, look, this is not about either of us being right or wrong. It's about a conversation. <laughs> no, and, no. And, I want to find a winner. The article here. I wrote is about, is about opening a conversation, but I think you're making a great point about like, sometimes you need to turn off the content to actually make stuff. But the point is to not just be completely lost in your own world. Like you need to exist in a context. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh, that's um, good. Yeah. That's good. Uh, this number eight says, uh, take the long view. And this is similar to what we were talking about with persistence. And I've said this, I've said this quote on this show a million times. So people are going to be sick of hearing it, but I love it so much. And I remind myself of it all the time. It says people overestimate what they can do in a year, but underestimate what they can do in 10 years. So talk to me a little bit about like what the long view means to you and to Brassland. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of some of the stuff I was talking about earlier, like in terms of letting artists graduate to other labels, it's mm. like, Yes, I can take an artist to X point, but, you know, taking the national or this is the kid to a place where they can sell like five or 10,000 records or get to, you know, a bunch of songs to one or two or three million streams is great. But, you know, what's actually going to be even greater is if a much larger company takes them to a much 
larger area of space and literally like the runoff from that success or the the cultural context that it's putting them in, you know, then lets us get um, this is the kit songs that we put out into like five or six TV shows that would not have happened if they were not on this larger platform. So that's part of the long view. I think part of it is understanding like there's no quick fix and this has always been true, but it's Mm -hmm. getting even more true. Like, Culture, like, forms of ubiquity are sort of necessary. You know, it's mm. my friend does that podcast song, Exploder, and there's okay. a reason that he's able to get, like, U2, or I don't know if he's had Kendrick Lamar yet, but, like, he has huge artists sure. on that podcast now. Um, and the reason artists are doing it, these huge artists, is because they want to be everywhere. And it's just worth knowing that, like, there's no like quick fix to success. I remember, you know, the records that we put out by the national were getting like spreads in the fader when that was sort of the, I don't even think it's uh, coming out in print anymore mm. post pandemic, but it was sort of like the all current magazine to be in. We got a review in Rolling Stone, you know, on mm-hmm. the same spread of pages as Bell and Sebastian in the rapture. Like I, I sometimes look at that scan, you know, <laughs> from back when that happened. And like, you'd think like if you put them in this context, it would seem like, they were huge, but actually that was just like the first of a million things, you know, right. and, and they've outgrown Bell and Sebastian in the rapture, but like just getting in that context didn't, didn't do it for them. So it's just understanding it's going to take a million things to get anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Like I think that can be both intimidating, but it can also be helpful, you know, um, to know that the mountain just keeps getting taller. How do you, what does the long view mean for you as an individual, like as a, as a professional, uh, an entrepreneur? How do you view the long view? It's been interesting. I mean, 20 years has been, I don't know if I think about it. I'd say I stay pretty focused in the today in terms of my work, mm-hmm. um, which is sometimes quite tedious, the work that you have to do um, with a label. I think 20 years has been a time out to reflect a little bit on maybe taking a different kind of long view. Like I do feel like I'm possibly closing a certain chapter on the label mm. at a certain point, you know, like I think I've, I'm, I'm getting an interest in looking a little bit at the history and making sure some people are aware of the history um, in a way I've never been. Like, I think a lot of times historicizing yourself can be confining. Like, you know, you can sort of build your own coffin around you, but sure. the 20 minute, the 20 year mark feels like a moment where maybe I'm okay with doing that or I'm open to doing that yeah. a little bit more. Um, in part because I don't think I want to necessarily be running the label for the next 10 years like I've run it for the previous 20. Or maybe the better way to sure. put it is I I can divide it into eras. Like the first 10 years were definitely just like pure struggle and aspiration. <laughs> um, you know, I think if you talked, you know, I don't think the National had day jobs by 2010, 2011 when we were 10 years old, but they were not far from them. Oh, wow. You know? That's crazy. Um And I think the last 10 years have been more like, you know, consolidating the camp and consolidating like a sort of reputation. And I think the next 10 years might be something different. I don't really know what that is. That's interesting. Now, but I do think think, thinking in five or 10 year increments is definitely helpful (laughs) rather than thinking about like what's going to come in quarter one. Like I've always avoided being that kind of label. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is something I want to finish with this, and this is something I feel like has almost been the theme of this episode, but you said uh, on this list that was further down the list, 
you said define success your own way. That's easier said than done. I love it. I think it's true, but I find it hard to do. I find it hard. I, I'm always moving the goalposts. I'm always looking at other people, but I love that. Define success your own way. Yeah, well, I think it's not letting the world dominate what you do. I mean, you know, for me, I mean, I think one of the things that's making me want to change what my role in the ecosystem of labels is, is I can see labels like, how do we make catchy three-minute songs that don't disturb people? Because that is what works on Spotify, yeah, you know? Yeah, right, right. Um, <laughs> are relatively people. short recordings <laughs> that can, like, work in the flow of other things. Mm. And it's not to say that playlist culture, I think sometimes playlist culture is sort of overstated how helpful it is. You know, I, there are, like, huge, very difficult art metal bands that, like, you'll go to their records on Spotify and every track will have, like, about a million plays and mm. they'll be, like, every song is 7 to 15 minutes long. <laughs> yeah, and you're yeah, like, yeah. yeah, this is not getting playlisted. Like, people are <laughs> just seeking this yeah, on right. these platforms. <laughs> but I definitely think there's an energy that to streaming right now that makes you want to package music in a certain format. And I think not changing what you put out to satisfy that is really important. I mean, I think, you know, I look at like the secretly family of labels, mm. which I generally admire a great deal, but I do think some of the kind of artists that they worked on, worked with early in their history, like they're no longer working with because they can't figure out how to make it work in this sort of streaming era. I see. Um, and, you know, I think of something that like 4AD did. They, 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 they put out a bunch of late era Scott Walker records. And I literally think they were doing that just because they thought it was awesome, not because they thought these were going to compete, you know, with their frontline signings. And I just think keeping things that are sort of odder in your sort of family is really important. And I don't want to actually be unfair to... Yeah, yeah. Um, to, to you know, Jag, Jag Jaguar as part of their like 25th anniversary celebration had did this tribute record to uh, Richard Young's uh, Sadie, which is like is it Sappy or Sadie? Um, I'd have to look up the sure. title, but um, incredible record from their back catalog. And I think all of them, you know, I think they openly stated they got Sharon Van Etten and Moses Sumney to like do cover versions, mm. um, backed by the Hypnotic Brass Band of, of this early classic in their catalog, which was, I think, three songs, none under 10 minutes long. Um, I think it's important to never lose that. Yeah, Don't yeah. let, whatever, speaking of a famous Canadian, like, you know, Marshall McLuhan's big thing was like, the medium is the message, mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. don't let the medium define what you're doing creatively. I think it's really important. Oh, yeah, that and that is a big challenge. I, I do I do sometimes uh, admire what the playlist culture is doing and uh, and some of the income is nice, but yeah, it's when you start to write for that format, that's dangerous. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of music that's being made in this era and that's quite successful in this era that is going to be looked back at as the equivalent of like late 70s, early 80s disco, where it was like the Grateful Dead are making a disco album. You know, like just everyone was doing it. And yeah. there were really interesting things that came out of that. You know, I think like Sparks is an example who like made a record with, uh, with Giorgio Moroder that right. was, that people love and yeah. see it as a highlight of their discography. But I think there's just a lot of fly-by-night 
cultural production happening because of the streaming thing. But it's also, yeah, and it's also a prime time for the counterculture too. So hopefully something on the opposite end of the spectrum comes out out of all of this as well. There's always awesome stuff being yeah. made. Yeah. I think that's like the one thing. Music is never hopeless. And anyone that <laughs> it might be more confusing than ever, it might be hard to wade through <laughs> yeah. it. But like anyone that says that like music is worse is like a fool. Like it's just a foolish. Yeah. They're not a fool, but they're not trying hard enough, I would say. <laughs> well, it's been said like every 10 years. People have just said that over and over. Uh, listen, thank you so much for doing this. This has been so fun to chat with you. Thank you. And thank congrats you. Been, on uh, 20 years. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you go to brassland.org. That's B-R-A-S-S-L-A-N-D.org. Follow them on social. Check out what they're doing for their 20th anniversary. Um, it's such an inspiring label uh, to hear their story and to see them witness um, so much success and to see their artists move on. I think that's such a cool story. I hope that you found this interview helpful. Like I said, with this groundswell of the fall coming back into play um, and you know th things changes, it feels like a new season, a new year. Make sure you go to otherrecordlabels.com where we have these resources that will uh, equip you and encourage you and educate you on being better at, at running and, and, and starting a record label. Thank you so much for listening.